Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, University of Massachusetts English and biography professor Gretchen holbrook Gerziner. Her book, Britain's Black Past, was published in March 2020 by Liverpool University Press. It features biographies that she, along with 19 other authors, wrote about the lives of lesser-known and well-known Black Brits. So I asked Gretchen Gerziner what inspired her to edit this ambitious collection of biographies. I had done a BBC 10-part radio series by the same name, Britain's Black Past, and it aired on Radio 4. It's actually still available on their website. And for that, I went with the producers to interview various people all over Britain. And I went to Scotland, I went to Wales, and I met with people who were working on individuals in, and so we were in the setting where those individuals had lived and worked. Some of them had a more historical, contextual framework for the people they were doing. And then when I finished and the series was done, I thought, well, you know, this might make an interesting book. Some of these people are doing wonderful new research and they were people I'd never heard of and I'd done three books on Black Britain. So I thought, oh, okay, who are these people? So it it turned into a big thing. I I will say that any of us who have edited books know that it's probably easier to write one of your own than to to get everybody on deadline and then edited it myself. So the, the impetus came from the fact that we discovered that there was just new research that people were off, you know, in their little pockets of research doing things that really ought to be shared more widely. What new research uh, was being done on Black British men and women? I was mainly interested in the long 18th century. I didn't want to get into, certainly not the 20th century when the population grew again. I didn't want to be bringing in things that people already might have known some things about. So I wanted to keep it narrow. So it wasn't just about Ignatius Sancho, who was a wonderful person, and he is in, in fact, in the book, or Alauda Equiano, you know, people that we might have run across and people read and knew about. Um, There was a woman in a little museum in Chepstow, Wales, who'd been working on a man named Nathaniel Wells. And she really just had devoted her non-working daily life to exploring this man. And she had just so much information and she was so enamored of him. In some ways, it was harder because I wanted to be a bit critical about a mixed race man whose money came from slave plantations in Antigua and whose mother owned slaves as well, you know. And he was a pretty interesting guy, I will say, but for me, these were problematic things. And how do we explain this away? I also wanted to bring in more women because there were more black men than women at the time in Britain. And I wanted to just say, hey, can we think some more about some of these women and who they were and maybe rethink it? So, okay, so you're concentrating on the 1700s for the most part? Yeah, and in the beginning of the 1800s, yeah. So what was the population of Blacks in Britain during the, that period? 
you know, that's a contested issue. The figures run between 10 and 30,000, and it's probably closer to 15, 18. But remember that Britain was very much smaller in terms of population than it is now. And these people would have been more concentrated in seaport areas, urban areas, places like London, Bristol, Liverpool. So it's hard, but they, you know, to find people who are also hidden away in country houses and, you know. So I would say I usually fall on the 15,000 and I can't give the exact population of England at the time, but it's somewhere in there. Do you know how many were enslaved and how many were free? This is another interesting question (laughs) because the British fully believed that their air was too pure to support slavery on their own soil. So the assumption in some ways was that, of course, nobody's enslaved here. That all happens somewhere else in the West Indies and South Mm. America and America. But of course, they were people being sold in coffee houses and pubs and taverns all the time and runaway slave ads were appearing. So it's hard to tell. I will say that when the Somerset case was decided, which was 1772, I think, and it was to say one person couldn't be sent back into slavery. He couldn't be transported back into West Indian slavery. That was the impetus for people to just start leaving, (laughs) leaving the people they worked for and saying, oh, no, we're free now. And the judge would always say, no, that's not what I meant. (laughs) And so it's hard to to judge. But we do know that a lot of them were enslaved and then a lot of them freed themselves. Who were some of the interesting women? You know, there aren't as many to deal with. So there's always a problem right there. But I'll give you a name of Fanny Coker. Fanny Coker lived in Bristol, and she was enslaved in a house that had another enslaved man named Pero, P-E-R-O. And they had very, very different lives. Um, Fanny ended up being free. I have to think back to how she became free. But her life was surprising to me because she had a decent enough life with them, so much so that she went back and forth to the West Indies to visit family. She sent them money and clothes. And I thought, how can that be? That's not usual. (laughs) And I think sometimes she went with the family and sometimes she may have even gone on her own and came back. And that didn't fit into the paradigm of the enslaved black woman when we know about people like Mary Prince or others who never really quite made it out. So that really shocked me. But also shocking was that she lived in the house with another enslaved person and he never got free. And he had terrible unhappiness and depression and alcoholism. And they were always getting mad at him. And he ended up dying there. And his life was really different. They named a bridge in Bristol after him now. Hmm. Um, It's called Peril's Bridge. And people honor him. Some people say, well, you know, he's not the person to honor. And others say, yes, but he's emblematic of what happened to people who were enslaved. Uh So your chapter deals with (laughs) a character who our listeners may have seen in the movie Belle, the Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about who Belle was and what attracted you to her? I had written about her years before, and I had seen this double portrait of her that people may be familiar with, which is a picture of her outdoors with a white woman who it turns out to have been her cousin. They were actually first cousins. Before you go on, what's her full name? Dido Elizabeth Bell. And 
there are a lot of misunderstandings about her today. In fact, a new novel's just been written about her that's based on a misunderstanding. And it assumed that she was enslaved when she arrived in the household. But in fact, she was born free and she ended up marrying a white man. But she was brought to the house of the man who decided the Somerset case. He was her great uncle and her father who had had some kind of affair with her mother, Maria Bell, had brought her to live with this family. Some of the things were really romanticized in the film. I mean, they gave her a lot more money than she actually inherited. She was quite beautiful, I have to say, um, uh, in the film. She's just stunning to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, they made her a, a stronger heiress. They had her marry an abolitionist when, in fact, she married a French man who was a steward to a, a family. They added some of the racist aspects of it, which could well have happened. We don't know these particular things happened, but they could have been the situation she lived in. She was just fascinating because there is this beautiful portrait and people loved this picture and they weren't sure who she was because over the years, black people get, their names get taken out of pictures or they get called servant There's a famous portrait of Ira Aldrich, the famous actor, who started off as being Ira Aldrich playing Othello, then he ended up being portrait of a Negro, then it ended up being portrait of a man. (laughs) He just got more generic (laughs) as time went on. But we do know who this person was, and I actually first saw it in the house she had lived in. So people are still researching her life and finding out some really wonderful things that I'm not sure I'm free to share because they're still hoping to publish some of this, but, you know, it's a wonderful thing to say, okay, here's how much money she actually had. Here's the person she actually married. Here's the life she actually had, which was a pretty good life in London. She managed to buy a nice house and have children. Here's where she and her children are buried. Um, Mm -hmm. And here's what happened after she died and her husband went back to France. Mm -hmm. So it complicated the picture a lot because she was part of an aristocratic family of the family, but not of the family, you know, but she could read and write and had beautiful clothes. (laughs) Now she was actually born in London, right? She was probably born on the ship entering London um, Mm -hmm. because her mother was in Pensacola, Florida and came over on the ship with her father. And um, it was always thought that she was taken straight to live with this family, the Mansfield family. But in fact, she lived with her mother. Mother lived in London until Dido was, you know, maybe an adolescent. And then she moved later into the other family and went back and forth. So we get a a stronger picture of somebody who wasn't sort of cut off from her own birth family, um, but also was made part of another kind of aristocratic family. It's it's a really interesting story. Sounds like it. Mm. What were her years? When was she born? Dido was born in 1761. And she died in 1804. Mm -hmm. You know, the other interesting thing that this article was able to find from other researchers, I didn't do all this original research myself, I relied on other people, um, was that her father actually had a number of mixed race children by different women. And whether or not she knew these siblings is not clear. Mm -hmm. He also had white children. And speaking of uh, your own involvement in this book and, and other books, you've written biographies of an African-American family, of British painter Dora Carrington, and British novelist Frances Hodgkin Burnett. So how do you pick your subjects? When I was doing my PhD, I was one of the people who chose a genre 
rather than a period. And I chose the genre of the novel, which meant that I was reading widely across all novels. You know, and that included foreign language, it included British, it included American, it included African-American. So I already had given myself permission not to be narrow. Mm -hmm. I chose Dora Carrington, which was my first book, just because I had become fascinated with a woman who was part of the Bloomsbury group, but not really part. I mean, she knew Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was one of the last people she saw before she died. And she knew all of these people. She lived with Lytton Strachey, who was a member of the Bloomsbury group. And and my purpose was to say, how come nobody recognized that she was an artist and really tried to help? So that was my premise going into her biography. And then as you do, you start doing archival research. And then I remember the day I was sitting in the British Library and I found a letter from Lytton Strachey to her. They lived together. He was homosexual. So what their relationship was very complicated. But you know, a letter that said, please let me build you a studio. You should actually have more space to do your work. And I went, there went my whole hypothesis <laughs> that he was keeping her back from her work. So, you know, it was a matter of reading letters. And I had been given a, um, a chance to go to UT Austin for a conference and discovered they had half of her letters were there. And I kept missing all the conference sessions to go read these letters. <laughs> and finally, the vice president of research was sitting next to me at lunch. And he said, if we give you a grant to come down and use the library, would you stay and start coming to our meetings? And I said, oh, yes, thank you. And then I met, I started meeting people who had known her in England. And that just flushed it out. I got a lot of things from people who knew her. But then when I wanted to do my next book, it's called Black England in England, and it was Black London in America. And I was in London doing research. I can't remember if it was on Bloomsbury or something else. And this book called Staying Power by Peter Fryer, it was a huge research project he'd spent his life doing on the history of Black people in England. And it had just come out in paperback. And I went into a London bookshop and I said, this book has just come out in paperback. Can you just point me to where I can find it? And the woman just looked at me and she said, Madam, there were no Black people in England before 1948. <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, there were. And she said, not in any numbers, no. And she wouldn't even look up the book to help me find it. I finally found it somewhere. But it made me so angry that I put aside whatever I was working on at the time. And I said, I want to write this book, you know, because others had written on it. I wasn't the first but I wanted to bring it back with new research and, and look at their old research and bring it back into some, a more public sphere. I actually stopped everything, got a contract for the book and wrote the book. And it changed my life, I have to say. Really? Have. really well, for one thing, I never looked at London the same. Mm -hmm. I said something in the introduction about now when I stand on a street corner, I see Black people walking by me wearing the livery of a servant. I imagine them, you know, as the coachman. I see them when I go to my bank. And, you know, they became, it was like a, a palimpsest, you know, of historical people. And then it got a lot of attention. There was a guy I did a, a, a radio interview with, and he told me his nephew had run off with the book. And he said, I didn't know we were here. And I said, okay, well, that's a life changer right there. Exactly. From, from, it was important. And um, people still read it. You know, it just surprises me that it's still out there. It's actually a free download. I gave it to the Dartmouth Library as a free download. And so people can access it online. And what's it called again? 
Black London. Um, speaking of that, what made you decide that England and its people, particularly its people <laughs> of color, was going to be your focus? My focus is actually on lives. So Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden, she's not Black, and she said some not always nice things about Black people. Not negative, but just sort of stereotype. She lived in D.C. for a long time, but she was British. So I was just interested in people who crossed boundaries, periods, countries, and our enslavement, all of those things. So Burnett, that was an accident because somebody was writing a book, an encyclopedia of American women writers and wanted me to write about her. So I said, sure, because I only knew of The Secret Garden and maybe one other book. But they had a big formula that you had to spend these many pages on her biography, which was a lot of pages. You had to do a bibliography. You had to do a kind of analysis. I mean, it went on and on. It was long. Mm -hmm. And so I said, OK, I'll, I'll devote myself to this. And then I discovered she'd written 53 novels and that most of them were for adults, not children. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> so by the time I finished this 50 page article, I just went to my publishers and I said, I think I need to write her biography. Um, the previous one was 30 years ago. Maybe I can write a newer one since I've done all this reading and this research and read all 53 of those damn novels. And so, and that was fine, except that I finished the book and then I discovered she had a living great-granddaughter mm. in Texas. So off I went to Dallas and discovered she had 40 boxes of letters, photographs, paintings, you know, I mean, it just went on and on. So then, you know, I had to write the book over twice. <laughs> wow. We became very friendly, um, but it did, you know, biographies, you know, this take seven years to write, especially if you're teaching and doing other things. So there went seven years of my life devoted to Francis, you know, which I wasn't expecting. But I have to say the book that was closest to my heart was Lucy Terry Prince. And this weekend was the 200th anniversary of her passing. And I was part of a group that was able to get it declared Lucy Terry Prince Day mm -hmm. by the state of Vermont. They did a mm -hmm. proclamation. And now they've just putting up markers in the two towns she and her family had lived in. Who was she? Lucy Terry Prince was Lucy Terry. Some people may have known her poem, Bars Fight, which is now considered the first known poem by an African-American woman. It wasn't published until 100 years after her death. Wow. I found it in a newspaper all that years later. Interesting fact about that, people didn't know that a Black woman had written this poem, and they were all meant to memorize it in school. And I met women who would tell me, you know, my grandmother had to memorize that poem. She had no idea who wrote it, nor did her teachers. But I was living in Vermont at the time, and um, my mother, who was a, a white genealogist, said, oh, by the way, you know, there was this black family who lived in your town. And I lived in a small place, you know. So I said, oh, OK. And his name was Abijah Prince. And I hadn't put two and two together. And I finally went, holy cow, he was married to Lucy Terry. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so I said, OK, I got a grant from the NEH. I had a year to, to work on this. And I said, I'll just sit in my little country house here. <laughs> and write this book in the local history society, which turned out to have a file folder of 10 newspaper clippings. That was it. That was the whole thing. So I thought, no, this is not what I had planned. I thought I was going to just sit here and write this nice little book. But it was 18th century, a Black woman. I mean, she was born 1720, 25, and mm. something like that. And 
you know, there are no letters, there's no journals, there's no diary, there's so no drawings. You, so how do you find out about someone's life if there are no arch yeah. archival uh, documentation? It was like heart stopping when you realize this, what do you do? Um, well, I did two important things. You know, it's always a trail. You find one thing and you read the index and you find a little mention and you go to the next thing. And then that's how you go, like following the breadcrumbs. But the first thing I did was when my year was up and I had not written this book because I was still trying to track everything down, I turned to my husband, who is not an academic. He's actually an Italian-American guy from Queens, New York, who worked in industry. And he had retired. And I said, well, you know, you're going to have to help me. I, I got to go back to work. So he brought a non-academic eye to everything that opened everything up because he was able to think in a different way. Mm -hmm. I'm very chronological. Mm -hmm. So we would sit there and look at records from a town from 200 years ago. And I'll say, see, I went here three times. There's nothing here. Here's the dates that she would have been here. And he just thought, and he said, well, why do you assume it would be in chronological order? Paper was scarce then. Maybe they did something else. They flipped to the back of the book and there were eight pages of town meeting minutes about her. Wow. I never, it never occurred to me. So that was the story of him finding things. But the second thing I did was I was trying to discover how her husband, Abijah, had lived. Uh, he was born in Connecticut, Wallingford, Connecticut. He was black and he was 25 years older than she was. And he was enslaved till he was 56. Wow. And I would go to the historical societies and look up and say, you know, I'm trying to find the family that owned him to see if they had any comments about him mm -hmm. you know in their records or transfer of ownership anything and i learned very quickly that you don't tell people that you're researching a black person because they compartmentalize and they would just say no i'm sorry we wish we had more on african-american history and i said but let me look at the file on this family or that family which never occurred to them that Black people's stories might be mixed up with white people's stories, and that's how you could find them. And then once I found that family's story, I started realizing that there were names in that family that matched up with names in my white ancestral family, mm. not my black side of my family, the white side. Mm -hmm. And I went to my mother, bless her heart. She had years of genealogical research, and she started going through it with me. And she said, oh, my heavens. And there they were. So it turned out that my white ancestral family had owned Abijah Prince. So nobody had known this story, the full story about him and Lucy. They had just saw stuff on the internet or made up stuff and family lore, you know, all of that stuff. And once I discovered that, it was really as though they said, we waited 250 years, now you're going to tell our real story. Mm. And things started opening up. It was just remarkable. Yeah. I get all goosebumpy, you know, because it was, um, I feel that they they finally got their due. So you're saying that she was the first published poet after? Yeah, well, I don't say, I won't say published. I will say known because her poem, Bar's Fight, was actually composed before what we know of Wheatley's. So I think those dates are right. So Wheatley, of course, far surpassed her, you know, as a poet. Yeah, I was going to say, everybody talks yeah, about this no, Wheatley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and rightly so. Um, but, you know, Lucy was just sitting in Deerfield in Western Massachusetts, and she would compose things that could be memorized. The one poem we know of, although I, I'm pretty sure she wrote others, but, you know, paper, I mean, who had money for paper and ink, and she was enslaved, and 
all of those things. So um, I think she composed ballads that people could recite and remember, and that's how it went down. And then it finally got published a hundred years later. But she was very, very early and um, Baja freed himself. And then when they got married, we somehow think that he helped to get her freed and they were married and had children. Um, since you are a professor of biography and English at the University of Mass Amherst, how do you teach students who may be the next generation of biographers? How do you teach biography? Oh, one of the things I do is have students go through archives and identify a person who's not a family member and write a slice of life biography using archival materials. And that helps a lot. It's hard to get a student to read a full long biography in addition to trying to write. So I'm trying to do a combination of reading and writing. And I may have them pick one person who has an archive, but who may have had a biography written and see what they can do with that. But it, it is a tough thing because they expect to be able to do everything on the internet. Right. And that's the first thing to learn, that it's not all out there. So for example, um, the UMass Library is the main repository of all of W.E.B. Du Bois's papers. And we know a lot about Du Bois and he's written, you know, tons of stuff. But they could, for example, go through his letters, his other publications and other things and say, okay, I'm going to concentrate on these 10 years. You know, maybe when he's working on, you know, this magazine or maybe when he's living in Harlem or maybe, you know, and just say, focus and see what you can glean from the original materials and then give some context for it. You know, they can't do in a semester what takes us seven years to do or 10 years or something. So, but they have to care about the person. And if there are people who have living descendants, they could interview them. You know, everyone's greatest fear is that now that everything's texts and computers and everything, we won't have letters and that we won't have those materials. So what really has surprised me is that there are people out there who are finding things that we thought we'd already uncovered everything. There are a lot of genealogists, family historians who are trying to pull things together. Working with them is a little more difficult because they sometimes make leaps of belief about what they've found that aren't always true. But I will say that family historians are starting to find some really fascinating things. That was biography and English professor Gretchen Holbrook-Gerzina, author and editor of Britain's Black Past, published by Liverpool University Press in March 2020. This interview was recorded via Zoom on July 14th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. Bye.